0: Yale Podcast Network I don't know why we have created this this concept of a of a whistleblower it used to just be the truth that we all believed and now we have to have some sort of you know individual risk it all to announce the truth that was once ubiquitous it was it was we all agreed this was wrong and now suddenly it's like well maybe there's some another way of looking at it there's no other way of looking at toenails in your ham. I mean, that's just gross. When did we start to have a dialogue about an acceptable amount of feces on our food? I mean, there's no acceptable level...
1: Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. I'm thrilled to welcome Jen as my co-host for this and upcoming episodes. Jen is an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council and co-director of the Environmental Protection Clinic at Yale Law School. Lindsay Stern, this podcast's co-host and co-producer for the first 28 episodes, is stepping back from making the show to focus on writing her next book and other exciting new projects.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. I'm excited to be here. Our guest today is attorney Amanda Hitt, the director of the Food Integrity Campaign of the Government Accountability Project, or GAP. Based in Washington, D.C., GAP is one of the nation's leading nonprofits dedicated to whistleblower advocacy and protection. Many of the biggest headlines in recent years, the impetus for Trump's impeachment, the coronavirus, mass government surveillance, lead-laced water in Flint, have shared a common element, whistleblowers. Whistleblowers. In each of these stories, the public learned the truth because individual men and women spoke out about hidden wrongdoing by our government or corporations, often at grave personal cost. While national
1: security whistleblowers garner more headlines and presidential tweets, whistleblowers are also critical to the integrity of our food systems. In an age where almost everything we eat is produced outside of public view, we have these brave individuals to thank for serving as the public's frontline defenders. They are often the first people to warn the public when food is unsafe, when workers face inhumane conditions, when food labels mislead consumers, and when animals and the environment are being abused.
2: Amanda Hitt has been a champion and advocate for food system whistleblowers for over 10 years and has made it her life's work to empower and protect the people telling truths behind the food we eat. Her clients have included former USDA food safety inspectors in ultra-high-speed slaughterhouses, contract poultry farmers faced with exploitative contracts and company retaliation, and a meat plant quality assurance manager who helped expose pink slime. In addition to litigating whistleblowers' cases, Amanda and her team worked to publicize these whistleblower stories and to promote legal reforms. Amanda Hitt, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Well, thank you guys. It's good to be here. Amanda, how did you come to be a lawyer for food whistleblowers?
0: Well, I I started off as as an attorney and... um, found that, that work very unfulfilling. I felt like I was just transferring money from one wealthy organization to another. And so I was like, well, I, I got to do something different. So I, I took that big risk of, of going back to school. Yet again, and I, I was like, well, I'll, I'll pursue a master's in public health because in my mind, it was like, well, if I, if, I, if I did this, then maybe I'd have an opportunity to stop these bad things from, from happening rather than sort of being on the receiving end as a litigator uh, in, the, in the for-profit world. So it was the decision to do something uh, good for society.
2: What drew you to the public health field
0: i i was very fortunate i i met a public health attorney so um he i believe he was the first j d mph um at uh johns hopkins bloomberg school of public health um and he was a, he became a, a friend and a mentor to me and um he was the reason um that i even contemplated going to law school in the first place i mean he it was his idea that i should uh should give it a try and when uh when i was came back to him and was like I, I don't know if I like being a lawyer and uh, we, you know we had this conversation he's like well maybe maybe you just don't like to be the lawyer that you know has to receive the bad news you want to be the type of lawyer who stops bad news from happening and um, and that's when the the idea of going to public health school really really sort of came to me as, a, as an option
1: we would love it if you would tell us about some of the whistleblowers that you've worked with and you're working with to sort of illustrate some of these issues that you're working to try to stop in advance or to, to bring to public light. And in particular, I'm wondering if we could focus on our, our two recent whistleblowers who you've helped um, represent, Jill
0: Maurer and Anthony Vallone. Will you please tell us about who they are? So Anthony Vallone and uh, Jill Maurer are two of my uh, most uh, recent um, uh, whistleblowers who came to my attention uh, through our uh, high-speed slaughter campaign. We've been uh, working for a few years, um, trying to stop a, a, a dangerous new government program from coming into effect. Um, it's been in, in pilots. It, it was called the hemp, HIMP model. The HIMP program um, has been piloted for years, and it recently was um, released nationally in poultry. And our organization immediately started working on the next. The next big high-speed slaughter model push, which was we we had good reason to know was going to to move toward pork, so we started a campaign and um, made ourselves available to federal uh, meat inspectors who had uh, had raised complaints um, about this new hazardous new system uh, that was not only um, in their mind compromising the safety of our food system, but also compromising the safety and and welfare of our workers and also um, compromising um, really uh, the welfare of the animals as well. As a matter of just thinking about it, it's – I mean we're we're talking about a matter of of like a minute or two to inspect an entire pig and uh, these sort of blurring speeds of imagine these giant um, animals moving – you know, down these conveyor belts and at uh, breakneck speeds, and and one inspector uh, being in charge of of making sure that that animal once was was transported safely, slaughtered effectively, and then is also responsible for the pathological components of that animal, making sure that the food is actually safe to eat. It's it's certainly not humanly possible, but we'd also like to express rather that that it's not humanely possible either. So so it. it it's a it's an animal welfare issue, but it's it's very much a consumer issue as well. And so we we did this campaign, and um, we we were very fortunate. Uh, four whistleblowers came forward, um, and they at that time were anonymous and provided affidavits about the failings of the high speed system in pork. And we were able to get a lot of attention with with that. Um, but at the end of the day as you as you if you've been following the news everybody wants to see that whistleblower you know nobody <laughs> nobody's just going to let that go and um and that you know that that brings us to this really critical point you know about whistleblowing you don't you don't always get to see the whistleblower because uh, that person's going to take extraordinary risk to come forward i mean it's it's in some cases i mean the best case scenario they're going to have a problem with their livelihood in a worst case scenario, they might they might have a problem with their life. I mean, these plants are the the employers for these often small rural towns, and if you go up against the plant, you're going against an entire community. So to get a whistleblower to come forward in any way beyond an anonymous affidavit was a feat in in and of itself, uh, and we were we were able to to work with one woman, Jill Maurer. She's just a, has extraordinary courage and. Uh, she uh, met another uh, meat inspector at her plant, a younger person, and he hadn't been there very long, and was um, just became completely aware very, very quickly that there was something really wrong with these high speed slaughter plants. And he joined uh, Jill and coming public, and the two of them uh, were recently um, uh, featured on uh, NBC and on Morning Joe, and and their story has has become quite public and is actually making international news as well. And we should say, too, that these pilot plants where
1: Jill and Anthony were working, where the pigs are being slaughtered at rates of around 1,300 pigs per hour, is now a system that has been green-lighted to be spread you know, across the country beyond just these pilot plants. So potentially 90 percent of the country's pork could be produced at these speeds. Is that right?
0: That's that's the goal. I mean, despite every effort to stop this high-speed slaughter process from nationalizing and every, every warning— it would appear that there was a perfect storm. And, and in this case, uh, we were looking at, you know, pigs in China. I mean, um, the um, African swine fever hit um, and, and depleted major portions of, of the uh, Chinese market. I mean, there was um, an incredible loss of, of lives, of, of pigs, and um, the U.S. was there, and, and it was there with high-speed slaughter, and, and it just there it was. So even after years of protest, one crisis um, and and you can see how how some th- things changed and now we're looking at a nationalized program i mean we're we're staring down that barrel of a gun fortunately um i guess there is good news there are there are lawsuits there's a there's a few ac- actually out there because there's so many entry points um or uh, so many so many avenues where things could go wrong with high speed slaughter. There's a several entry points for um, for litigation. So you can take an animal welfare perspective, a worker rights perspective, and and even a, and a food safety uh, perspective as well when when you're challenging this legally.
1: I'm just going to read part of one of the affidavits that Gap collected from longtime USDA food safety inspection system inspector about the impacts of him. So listeners can understand the gravity of what these whistleblowers are seeing and reporting to the public. And so here's a brief quote from it. Under hemp, inspectors keep track of both food safety and food quality defects. When a product has a food safety defect, it is not safe for human consumption and is to be condemned. Defects that aren't necessarily unsafe for consumption but would be unappetizing for consumers, such as toenails or hair, are considered other consumer protections, OCPs. These OCP dressing defects are tolerable in certain amounts depending on which of the three OCP categories the USDA has determined them to be in. Using the OCP system, the agency continues to make it easier and easier for the company to let products with dressing defects get past federal inspectors. For example, they have increased the amount of hair that is allowed to go through the inspection system and into the cooler by altering the miscellaneous category. Additionally, the agency has made the determination that abscesses are only an OCP1, which means they are safe for human consumption. They used to be considered a food safety issue. If consumers knew what these looked like and that the agency was allowing them to go out to the public, they would freak out. And the anonymous... Hog inspector later says the USDA supervisor in this plant changes product standards constantly. It's obvious that there is no longer any agency standard by which plants must abide. It is no longer meaningful for consumers to see that mark indicating that their product has been USDA inspected.
0: I, you know that, you know it's bacon now with toenails. You know, as you know, we we talk about um, people. People get very excited about this notion of deregulation and. Um, and here you have it. I mean, the the product's being deregulated, and you're paying the same price, but now you're getting a lower quality. I don't think that's a win. I think that's a net loss for the consumer. And I wish it was just cosmetic, but it's unfortunately not. Not only are you know what that you know anonymous meat inspector shared is is just one small part of of this larger. You know, it's a larger problem with high speed slaughter, and, and the the biggest problem that that we're facing is that there there just aren't enough inspectors. It's it's a reduced inspector model in the first place. Like I should I should it's, it's less than traditional. So you have you're already starting this HIMP this Hazard Analysis Critical Com- Control Point inspection model program. HIMP. Um, it's already it's already got a fewer inspectors, but then those inspectors are short staffed. On top of that. So the idea behind hemp is that you would have sort of a a rotating sort of uh, inspector that was moving around and doing um, random testing and going out to the yards and checking on the living pigs, right? So actually seeing them and making sure that they're safe and healthy and well. And that this freed up inspector, this free inspector would be adding a level of safety to this, this hemp program unfortunately because of chronic understaffing that roving sort of moving inspector rarely exists so you're not getting anybody checking on those animals so in a traditional plant you were you're not getting anybody doing random testing you're not doing any of those extra activities that are supposed to be a part of the modernized hemp system they're not in actuality happening so there is not there is no benefit there is no the 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 bargain for benefit is just not there.
1: And the, this example of hemp is terrific too because it makes clear the, how important having whistleblowers protected is because the public would have no idea about the impacts of this hemp system of, in all sorts of ways were it not for these brave whistleblowers going out both anonymously and, and uh Upfront, like like Anthony and Jill, um, I'm wondering if you can tell us what sort of protections do whistleblowers have in these plants?
0: Well, yeah. What what kinds? Of, well, there there's no whistleblower law, so it's a whistleblower law is an aspect of employment law, but it's it's actually a, a patchwork quilt of many different laws across many um, many different um, different areas of society. So you you might see um, in the case of um, a federal employee like a meat inspector, that person might be protected under um, the the WPEA, the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. And so you see a great deal of in, um, federal employees using their whistleblower protections as accorded by that statute. But then if you were a private employee and an FDA-regulated um Scenario, you you would actually be protected uh, under FISMA, Food Safety Modernization Act, that has a pr- provision, and so I can go on and on and on about uh, each different sector having a provision. I should say, um, and I and we we rarely take credit for it organizationally, but many of those protections, um, almost every every modern whistleblower protection is um, a creature of the Government Accountability Project and the work that we did on the Hill, making sure if any new statute passed, like so con- consumer product safety for instance that that would also have a whistleblower provision and and you see this incredible bipartisan support for that because if you if you're a republican this is good use of your taxpayer money you you in an essence have deputized that government or the it was a private industry employee to regulate th- that private industry Itself. So it's um, there was an amazing interest from everyone involved. So you've got this freedom of speech people like talking about how wonderful it is to have people speak up, but you've also got you know good governance and, and taxpayers and um, everybody really loved whistleblowing there for a while. And so you see a. Uh, just a ton of of these modern provisions, and um that's um, largely thanks to a gentleman I and the founder one of the co-founders of the government accountability project uh, Tom Devine. so I should give him some credit uh, <laughs> it's a, um food safety modernization act is is an is one of one of his his creatures, so um we're able to cover i mean eighty percent of food is is uh, regulated by fDA. so if you think about the power of of that it's it's pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, and it does sound like there have been you know really incredible strides made, largely as a result of your work. But at the same time, there's there still is this very much patchwork system where a lot of individuals can fall through the cracks. What sort of work uh, are, are you gap and FIC doing to address some of these issues that, that
0: remain? Well I think it's you always have to know your rights it starts with that um I think a, a, you know a well educated um populace a, 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 you know if you have employees who know their rights then they, they they'll access them even when it's very difficult and they risk a lot to do it um the the first barrier that you have to cross is is are they even aware that they do have um, an ability to speak up? In in the case of food, that you're, you're going to see all kinds of you know, waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement. But the number one thing you'll you'll probably see is is a threat to public health, and um, and you see that in, in in issues of scientific integrity as well in in the food system. But um, you know if if you don't know you can speak, odds are you're not going to. And I. I think that's intentional. I, I I don't think many many businesses actually want their employees to speak up and and to, you know, certainly go to the media or, or go to some sort of, you know, seek seek legal advice. And so you see you'll see a lot of, um, maybe they're maybe they are well intentioned, but many times they have bad consequences. Like hotlines, you know, we want our employees to speak up. Well. But well, uh, very often those are huge nets um, that that cause a well-meaning employee to step right into a trap and um, they can they can suffer uh, you know employment consequences from from that or um, sometimes there's you know a, an ombudsman in a government uh, situation, and that person that person might actually be compromised depending on their reporting structure. So you have to be careful that um, you know what sounds good very often can be another level of trapping a, a whistleblower. It's, it's, it's difficult to even say this. It's, it's, it's getting to the point that I'm afraid that even using the systems that we have in place could be traps themselves if, if we don't get control over this. I don't know why we have created this this concept of a, of a whistleblower. It used to just be the truth that we all believed and now we have to have some sort of uh, you know individual risk at all to announce the truth that was once ubiquitous it was it was we all agreed this was wrong, and now suddenly it's like, well, maybe there's some another way of looking at it. There's no other way of looking at toenails in your ham I mean that's just gross. When did we start to have a dialogue about an acceptable amount of feces on our food? I mean, there's no acceptable level. But Food Safety Inspection Service, that the the public health arm of USDA, wants to argue, well, we don't we don't allow feces in your food when we see it. Well, but you're not looking anymore. No, we're not we're not looking anymore. But when we see it. Where your public health, you were know, we're there for you. I mean, come on. I mean, what's happening? Uh, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of whistleblowing we're talking about. We're saying people are saying the people who used to look for these contaminants, they're not looking anymore. And when you th- see a reduction in the complaints that they're writing, what you're seeing is the absence of inspection, not the absence of disease, right? Not the absence of pathology, Something's gone. Something's getting really screwy. Um, and I, you know, I, my strong sense is that it's gonna, it's, it'll, it'll be somebody like a food whistleblower that brings us back to reality. Because the consequences of an industrialized food system is, it, it, you know, it's, it's a, a great deal of human harm. The efficiencies of of getting a lot of food out there can also result in, in a great deal of um, human injury. I think we should have a zero tolerance for any deregulation in, of, of our food system. I think that that's. Playing with fire—it's—it's um, it's not just one farmer or one one at-home baker who made some bad tapioca pudding that that got her church group sick. I mean, we're talking about mega huge industries with cross-contamination issues that. I mean could rival anything we saw um, in, in the jack in the box um, de- e coli deaths i mean we're 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 at a point now if something of that nature happened i mean it would be it would be a, a huge loss of of life and, and and potentially but certainly a great deal of illness in addition to representing food
1: safety inspectors and people working in slaughterhouses, you also work on many other areas of the food system, including with some poultry contract growers. And in particular, you represent a man named Craig Watts, who was a contract poultry grower for 22 years before he decided to invite outsiders to visit his farm and to see firsthand um, how their chickens are being produced. Can you tell us about who Craig is and and what your work on his behalf has entailed?
0: Well, yes, as you mentioned, Craig's a a farmer. He's a type of farmer referred to as a contract grower, which means that this individual, Um, provides barns and and equipment that uh, allows for a baby chick to uh, grow out into a full-grown broiler chicken. A broiler chicken is an an eating chicken as opposed to an egg-laying hen. So uh, they grow out these animals. Craig had been doing this work um, and was, you know, extraordinarily disillusioned with with so many aspects of the contract rowing system, which is in and of itself, it's sort of the way I like to describe it. It's it starts off with a with a promise of of, of fame and fortune. And you sign a contract of adhesion. You oversee a process that is, you know, a threat to your your traditional notions of integrity and on how. Farmers sh- should relate to their animals and and to the the food that they produce, and then it culminates with horrible retaliation, and ultimately, the the decay of of rural communities. I mean, it's the contract growing system in and of itself is uh, is is a virus, and uh, it, it's a it's a plague on our our sense of uh, commonly held values and beliefs, and and the way that that animals should be treated, and also the way human beings should be treated. So. Craig was Craig was already not happy with this this virus that had affected his North Carolina community and his fellow farmers. But one day he it just got to be too much for him. He saw an ad, his integrator, which is the his the company that provides chickens to him for to to grow. Jim Perdue was walking through the the barns showing all these happy chickens and how they were antibiotic free and um everything was good and well and Craig just had enough, and he said, none of that is true. Those aren't what, the, what growers' barns look like. No growers' barns look like that that commercial. And he contacted um, an organization called Compassion World Farming, which is by CIWF, and they brought out a camera crew, and he did an unthinkable thing. He let people see just how, how bad it looks inside of one of these barns. And your knee-jerk reaction should be, well, it's his barn why did he let it look so cruddy? And that actually brings about that whole conversation about just how bad the contract growing system is. The reality is this farmer had no choice but to grow these birds in this way. His independence and self-determination are completely lost in a contract growing model. I mean, he, he this farmer, Craig, he, he did only what the company told him to do. He had a flock supervisor. The amount of food the animals got, medication that they got, space that they got, size that they were allowed to be, even a healthy but small bird would be culled, which is just another – like a nicer way of saying it. They, they kill a, a tiny bird. And, and the, reason, the reason they would do that is because Craig would, would have to absorb the loss of the, that dead bird in his facility – you know, so let's say you know they grew them out to roughly five pounds each. If he culls a four-pound bird, then the industry itself, when it goes to processing, when the animal actually gets slaughtered and processed, they don't have to pay for that low-weight bird. Craig already ate the cost for that. So the whole system is, is dollars and cents and it, it sort of – it undermines that our, our again our, our our notions of uh, farmers as stewards of of their land and and the, and the animals that they raise, and you you start to see that not only are those animals completely under the thumb of of the industry, but that farmer is too. And I think when Craig did that, I think he opened up the galaxy of exploited people and exploited animals and exploited. Environment it, it, it's not it wasn't just one farmer trying to get rich, it's a system that oppresses everyone and everyone is, is kept from doing thriving and, and doing their best animals and, and non-animals.
2: And I think it's worth pointing out that 71% of all contract broiler chicken farmers are living below the poverty line in America as well. And I, I think, as you said, this perfectly illustrates how in this system, animal welfare, human rights are so inextricably intertwined in this, you know, w- whether it's poultry contract
0: growers or, or meat inspection or other aspects of the system. I don't know if any, anybody who can say there? Oh, that the plant was horrible to, to animals, but great to the workers. I mean, every, all the workers were so happy. I don't know why they kept kicking the dairy cows, but the workers were so happy. You know, never. It's 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 all it's it can't be done without the other. They're they're um, they're in inextri- as you said they're inextricably intertwined, and there is not one without the other. And what you're seeing in in these slaughterhouses, and and it's just it's just we can barely scratch the surface on on, on today's program, but I mean. And you're also seeing like this horrible, horrible things that are done to women in these slaughter plants. And a lot of people are familiar with the Mississippi ice raids that that happened um, earlier mid 2019. I'm not sure exactly when, but they caught a lot of headlines. Well, that started off as women reporting sexual assault at that plant. They don't they're together. They they go together. There's something so dehumanizing about our factory farm system. It it really does. Uh, it takes the spirit out of people. It's something that's uh, that it's 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 an institutionalized plight. You know, it's 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 not the best of us. It's it's something that we need to put into the past. It's it's a relic now. It's um it's something I think that humanity needs to move beyond. And uh, again, it, it, you don't have to be an animal lover to, to feel this way. I, you know, I was, I, it was, uh, the title of your of your program, I, it, it made me think about. There's I, this story. It's like Aesop's Fables. Or, I don't know. I heard it when I was a kid. And there's this guy, and he's um, he's you know he's walking over a pedestrian bridge, and he, and he looks down, and he sees some fish swimming around, and he wonders out loud. He says, "I wonder what the fish are thinking." And a passerby heard him say that, and he said, "What?" What kind of man wonders what a fish is thinking? And the the man that had was looking down at the fish. He said, "What kind of man wonders what a man who's thinking about fish is thinking?" You know, we we know so little about each other, um, and then to extrapolate to animals is is that's a good. If you're able to do that, if you're able to be the type of person who wonders what fish are thinking then you're already like you're already there so to embrace this concept of what other humans are thinking is an easy step for you to to embrace the concept of what what is our what are these what is the system thinking is very easy so when we talk to an audience that that's animal focused I, it's a, it's such an easy leap to, to to understand you know the the rest of it right that there's more to it there's it's not just a it's not just a fish problem you know it's a it's a people it's a people thing and I think it's great that programs like this exist where we're we're looking at that interplay and talking to people who think what it's like to be a fish you know that's an amazing it's an amazing step and it's um, we should we should all be so happy to be uh, to be thinking that way.
1: On that note, you're starting a very cool new initiative within GAP called CLEAR, which I believe came out in part from your work with a whistleblower a veterinarian named Dr. James Keene, based at the U.S. MARC facility in Nebraska. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what CLEAR is and what GAP is doing in this regard, and then also about Dr. Keene's story as well.
0: Sure. So CLEAR is is an acronym, um, but uh, it's, it's the Center for uh, Law and Ethics in Animal Research. Clear actually started with the concept of, of the clarity that one gets um, when they start to realize that they were part of an, an oppressive system and that they were, in fact, personally responsible for wrongdoing and that that awareness that just it's, it becomes so clear. Um, and, and I'll give you an example of that. That's Dr. James Kean. So Jim, <laughs> Jim had been working um, in animal science for – for decades, and he had been a dutiful foot soldier at University of uh, Nevada Lincoln's um, Meat Animal uh, Research Center, uh, the Mark. They call it Mark. So he had he had worked at Mark, and he was um, over a period of time began to realize that the the studies that he was engaging in were, as he calls it, predictable fails. That this so, for example, there's something. Um, I guess it sounds. Sounds like a good idea. They were doing um, a research study to, uh, to increase twinning in cattle. So that would be more efficient, right? You'd get two cows for the price of, of one. Well, further, just like one little tiny scrape below that surface, you'll find out that twinning in cattle is actually a bad thing because what it, it ends up as having is, is the female, and if it's a male-female twinning, the female is, is usually um, she's, she's infertile. So now you've you've got an infertile cow, right? So, twinning is actually farmers don't want twinning, so they spent this multi million dollar had this multi million dollar investment in trying to promote something that actually had no benefit. And I would say of the experiments that he engaged in, that would be pr- perhaps the most. Uh, palatable. The other uh types of activities that he worked on were um trying to uh take a domestic sheep and basically um re-undomesticate it so that it it required less human intervention. So I don't know if you know this, so sheep sheep need people to uh, birthing sheep you know, it requires a shepherd and and they're Sheep required sh- require shepherds, right? Um, so they were like, well, "Well, we'll create these sort of wild sheep." They were called the easy care sheep. Well, all it resulted in were just little lambs dying in the hundreds um, because the mothers were not able to care for them because they're domestic sheep, right? They need human human assistance. So these, um, literally, just walking out in the fields and finding these little little lambs that had just frozen in the cold and um, – or had been eaten by coyotes. Over time um, and with with the help of his daughters, he was able to realize that um, what he was doing, the science that he was promoting was not actually um, beneficial in the way that he had – he had hoped it would be. I mean, his his initial thinking was that, um, oh, well, we need these kinds of experiments to feed a growing planet. And uh, his daughters, you know, were were giving him alternative arguments. And he was so sure that he was going to change their minds and show them that, you know, sustainability and, and the way that they were constructing the food system was is you know, impossible. And, and then his daughters ended up kind of converting him. And even though they didn't send him like right over the edge, you know, they did... They did start his mind thinking differently. and and that goes back to you know what you know, knowing your rights. you if you don't know there's an alternative, then the likelihood is that you're gonna stay in a um, in a rut. You're not gonna unrut yourself. You're just gonna keep you're just like a just stream of water or something. you're gonna stay in that path. Um, and, and it's not it's not likely unless you get a flood. That you're going to recourse somehow. So either that's knowing your rights and getting information out to whistleblowers, letting them know that they, they have protections, or in the in the case of uh, Jim Keene having access to just you know a program like this that said, hey, you know, there's actually some good science out there that we can do this another and better way. Um, and so now he's gone from a, from a you know a company man. To um, an animal welfare, welfare activist, and he's um, he's really exceptional, and we believe that there are other researchers out there that um, like him don't know that he has whistleblower protections. We were um, able to uh, afford him, um, you know, uh, some protections that um, that most people don't don't even think about that they they might have, um, and, and because of that, you know, he was uh, he's now pursuing. Um, His second act is what I call it. I mean, his second act as an animal welfare uh, activist. It's pretty pretty impressive.
2: It sounds like so many of these people have been working, you know, doing this kind of work for years. You know, Jim was in the research sphere for a long time. Craig was in a contract poultry grower for a long time. And you mentioned Jim's daughters. Is there a commonality between what
0: finally makes people decide that enough is enough and they need to speak up? So I have other colleagues on other podcasts saying no, I, but I will say yes. <laughs> um, so, um, no, I, I, do think, I do think there's a common, common thing there. Every whistleblower that I've ever known doesn't mind that they're part of a game. They're not – they don't have a problem. They're not rebellious. They're not mad that they're part of a game what they're mad about is that somebody stopped following the rules. And that's a that's a different mentality. So I'm I mean somebody asked me, "Well, are you a whistleblower?" And I'm like, "I'm just more like a rebel." Like, you know what I mean? I just I just I like see authority and I I'm, yeah, like I am like I've a problem with it, right? But um but whistleblowers, the ones that I know, ideologically are more conservative people, they're not um, they're not causing conflict. They're just doing their job. They're just Playing by the rules, it was the outside structure that didn't keep their end of the bargain. That's where the conflict started. It was none of the. I mean, look at that. How can you be twenty-two years doing this? You're not a. You're not stirring the pot. You're not causing trouble. Something happened to you. Like uh, someone came knocking on their door, not the other way around. In fact, extraordinary. Like I think seventy-five to eighty percent of all whistleblowers. They always blow the whistle within the chain of command. They don't run to the media. They go to their supervisor first and and for reasons that are – I mean they are they're myriad. They're but I mean one of the number one reasons that – if you ask a whistle, well, why, whistleblower, why didn't you come forward earlier? They were like, well, it was so awful. Surely other people had gone forward. Like it's this – the mentality is, is it's not what you think. It's not that they're – Unwilling, it's just that they were like, "Well, it was so awful. Surely somebody somewhere had already brought this to their attention, and nothing was being done." So it's 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 an interesting. I I do think I do think that that thread of playing by the rules is is really paramount there f- for why people come forward. It's it's because they just it, they didn't have a problem with the system. They had the problem. The problem was with how the system was behaving. That's
1: interesting. I was reading part recently
0: of the book Crisis of Conscience by Tom Muller in
1: which he interviews some 200 whistleblowers about about what they did and why. And he writes very similarly in all sorts of industries that they think that they're saving the company from a PR nightmare or from um, some serious human harm. And so then they go and report it internally or, or externally. And soon they have retaliation of some sort and they're kind of disabused of this Initial notion. Do you see that people then sort of become more rebellious and questioning of the system once they've reported it and faced this blowback?
0: Well. You know, after the retaliation, I, I mean, they're they're not they don't go out. You know, they're not cruising for a bruising. You know, they're not trying to, <laughs> you know, uh, speak out and get beat down, speak out and get beat down. Eventually, they find their way to a uh, lawyer or or to a media outlet or, or something, and and they they stop that lying loyalty to the corporation. And you know, like, like you said in in the in the book, it's saving yourself from a PR. Or, you know, I'm going to save the company, surely. The company doesn't want this to get out. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them know that there's, this product is tainted or any number of different things, right? So, but eventually they will see that the company is, does not have their best interests in mind and they will, they will fight back. And, um, and I think that their, their stories are among the most compelling. I mean I think the story of someone who did nothing but dutifully serve their, their employer and when faced with a crisis of conscience speaks out. There's nothing more compelling than that. And I don't think there's a, a better thing to do in the world than represent the truth and those, those, those whistleblowers. It's an incredibly humbling but in equal parts empowering because I'll tell you something. I've witnessed horrible, horrible outcomes as, as a consequence of, of whistleblowing with regard to not the public's health, um, that, that benefits, but with the, with the person the whistleblower themselves. I mean, they take this huge personal hit. I mean, Jim Jim Keen, who we talked about earlier, he his his wife. You know, he he, he did. He, they divorced as a consequence of his whistleblowing, and I mean, the FBI, you know, uh, investigating them, and and all of the consequences. And and it and it cost. It was the demise of of his marriage. But and, and that's just one story. I have many more, but not one, not one whistleblower, not in the twelve years of my doing this has ever said if faced with the opportunity to do it again, when they're asked if they would, every single one says they would, because they value the integrity of of that system. They value the rules, and they know that there's no sense in playing a game where one of the players is changing the rules. and I don't know, maybe you can extrapolate to where we are today, you know on a on a macro level, and, and you can't play a game. If someone's always changing the rules, if up becomes down today and down becomes up and left becomes right, then we just simply can't play this game, and and something uh, something's got to give. So, I think whistleblowers are the are the you know they're the barometer of of what's going on. I mean, I think you're going to see more whistleblowing because you're going to see this this you know random act of truth telling um, in a world that's gone upside down. There's going to be somebody who's like, wait a minute. That's not how we play Monopoly. You know, that's not how we play chess. Like that's not the way it works. So, I think it's it's a sign of the times in, in a way and it's uh it's interesting to be a part of an organization that as joyfully represents America's farmers as they do America's national security employees, you know. It's it's and with with the same with the same zeal and with the same fervor. And it's it's because we've completely identified with the idea that Truth, no matter how unfortunate or how unsavory, needs to be told.
1: We talked about earlier how over the past 40 years, the Government Accountability Project has helped draft or campaign to pass and help defend all of the major whistleblower protection laws. And I'm curious now, what do you and GAP see as the biggest priorities legislatively going forward for protecting, further protecting whistleblowers?
0: Well, I think I think it's it's just moving everything into that gold standard. You know, anything from um, you know from jury trials and um, access to courts and um, and making sure that all of the provisions have some some baseline, some sort of. Now that we have them, all the ships are there. Now let's let's raise them together. Let's get them at a baseline where they're they're all working as effectively as possible and 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 meet a standard. I think that that. Interestingly enough, you'd say, well, from America, then out internationally. I think some of the international whistleblower laws are even better than the ones in the United States. And it's and it's because it's – you know, you don't have to um, reinvent seatbelts just because cars show up in a developing country. We already know we need seatbelts. So we don't have to do a run of cars without seatbelts. It's, it's a public health – you know, great thing, right? It's something that happens. You don't have to say cars need airbags anymore, even if cars are new to a society or or something or stop signs are important or, you know, all of these things. You can learn from them internally and then um, source, you know, put them into new environments and have them actually working even better than um, the ones that we have in, in the United States. But- that requires going back and 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 designing again and getting them even better and, and even cleaner, so I think the priority it now is is really just achieving some some parity between this patchwork quilt, making sure that you know from statute to statute they're they're all at a certain level. I mentioned earlier I mean the ones that were introduced together are all the gold what we're calling the gold standard, but there's some earlier things um earlier issues like with um, like statute of limitations, for instance, um, you might uh, have an OSHA whistleblower with only you know thirty days to report. So that compared to um, you know a federal employee using the WPEA, um, it's it's apples and oranges. So it's just getting some, um, getting I think getting everything sort of at a at a nice functional level.
2: How have things changed under the Trump administration? I know under the Obama administration, there was uh, a crackdown on on, on whistleblowers uh, on the national security front. Have you seen any kind of a chilling effect with
0: the policies and, and administration of that under Donald Trump? Well, I you know, I have to just to sort of say this. So... Obama was no friend of whistleblowers either. You know, I mean, more more people were charged under the Obama administration uh, under the Espionage Act than had had been ever charged in the whole history of the Espionage Act. So, to to say that um, the Obama, you know, from from Obama to Trump, um, the the plight of whistleblowing is manifestly worse. You know, it, it's true, and it and it's and it's not. I think that everybody likes whistleblowers when they're they're on your side. <laughs> so let's let's just take Fox News. I, I mean, uh, right right before Ukraine, the Ukrainian whistleblower, there was everything was like. Whistleblower, VA, whistleblower, like they, like Fox News really embraced it. Trump embraced it. It was like, yeah, get them, you know, go after these regulatory agencies, show them how bad they are. So like I said, it's incredibly bipartisan. So when the whistleblower is doing what you want them to do and advancing your policy agenda, then it's all thumbs up. Um, so Trump obviously... That the Ukraine uh, whistleblower was not obviously in his interest, right? So he's uh, manifestly um, very negative about this whistleblower, demanding, of course, that this person's identity be released. And um, so I, I, I don't think it's ever easy to be the good guy in a world that makes a lot of money when things are covered up. Nobody wants wants that. That person who strictly adheres to the rules when you're winning because you're breaking those rules, right? But when, when the other guy's cheating, you really want that. Do you want that guy who knows the rules to, to say, no, no, that's not how we that's not, that's not in the playbook. That's not that you're not allowed to play the game that way. So, I mean, I wish it were as easy as being a partisan issue, but it's truly not. It's a human thing. You know, when we're winning, we, we don't want to be told that we got there. In a way that was unfair, I think it's very human. When we're doing well, we don't want to be told that what we've done is is the result of someone else's hard work. We want to think it's because of our own, you know, self worth and, va- and our own sense of personal value. So, whistleblowing is is unfortunately just an extension of of that. You know, it's like I only, only like the rules when when you're uh, you're benefiting from them. them
2: well, speaking of partisanship, your your work really lies at the intersection of workers' rights, food safety, and, and animal welfare, which has created this really powerful coalition um, among groups and individuals that normally would seem to be at odds with one another. You know, you don't normally think of animal welfare activists working with uh, employers in in the food and meat industry. How do you bring this coalition together and, and what's it like um, you know,
0: working across these different interests to move forward with, with the work that you're doing? Well, it's I, a, a funny story. So I, I have this, uh, this guy. He, he um, came out to our conference. He was um, on the contract growing panel and he um he, this was
1: the food integrity conference 10th anniversary conference yes. which you held this past year in 2019
0: that's right that's right and um we had a panel called growing resistance and and they had uh, farmers and and they had their advocates on that panel and um he was relaying to a to a mutual friend he said oh yeah Amanda, this this great conference and he uh, he so said, "I think like eighty or eighty five percent of those people must have been vegan, but they were they were listening to us, like they cared about what we were doing." And I said, uh, "I said, where'd you get that number?" I said, "We didn't even poll anybody's eating habits or anything. We didn't ask anybody." And he said, "Oh, at the big, beginning of the panel, Steve Edka, who's the moderator, he a- he asked if raise your hand if you're vegan or vegetarian," and he said. I'd say about eighty to eighty-five percent of the people at that conference raised their hand. I said, I said to the guy whose name is Tyler. I said, Tyler, Tyler. I said, they raised their hand because they'd heard the, the three panels that had come before, and after hearing how awful animal agriculture was, they were not going to not raise. They were like, "I'm vegetarian today. I, I promise you that." You know, I said, "That's that's." I mean, it, so it, even if you're like a die-hard labor movement person, after you hear these stories that are just so reprehensible and so inhumane on so many so many levels, like, at least for a moment, you're vegetarian. <laughs> for a moment, you're vegan, you know. it. it and so I, my point with that is, I think that there's a point at which everybody can recognize that things are just so, so bad that the system can't be supported. And the, the real question actually comes, is that a personal responsibility issue? Or is that a political thing? Should we be you know what we sh- what how should we approach this i think the general agreement is everybody knows this is n- not good right and I, I i think that the the fact that bacon tastes good is immaterial really like okay if it's true you know cheeseburgers taste good bacon tastes good but the pure import of the information you know just what you're receiving like what you're what you're hearing about factory farming how it how it hurts people and animals and the environment i really like our common humanity like it, it it depresses our our common humanity. I mean in light of that, I don't think anyone can disagree that we need to change the system. The problem becomes really like figuring out is that my personal responsibility or is that is that uh, is is that should the government be doing something. You know, and so it's the only disagreement. But I, I'll tell you, I, I promise you, at my conference, there were not 85% vegans there. There were or vegetarian. There were some converts that happened in that moment after seeing, you know, and hearing about about some of the the problems with the system.
1: But it was an incredibly powerful conference because you had such a diverse group there too, and mm-hmm. that you could easily have had that conference without certain groups represented. So you had the contract poultry growers facing these unfair contracts and exploitative payment setups. And then you have environmentalists concerned about the climate change impacts of the meat industry and animal welfare people focused on on the animals and journalists and academics and whistleblower protectors and public health advocates and this whole array. And the whole conference would have been um, immensely interdisciplinary or interissue, even without any one of those individual groups, without the animals, say. But um, I think it's a real testament to the importance of organizations like GAP that see all of these things as being interrelated, not just philosophically and theoretically, but also practically in building a coalition coming together. It's very inspiring.
0: Well, you know, and I I appreciate um, everyone who who came out. I I don't think anyone felt that their issue got short shrift. I don't think anyone felt that they weren't heard um, or that they were not the most important people in the room and or in the most important thing and and it goes back to to it though I and I, and I again that's it's the reason for this podcast It's the reason that you're doing this that when people can think about an entire different species and create an empathy, they can almost always take it down and create community and empathy with a human. Now, I know that there's, there's a lot of people that would say like, well, I, I'm, you know, vegan not because I like animals. It's because I hate people or something. You know, I don't, I, I'm sure, you know, people can make those ridiculous uh, statements. I, I'm pretty sure those people are joking. I, I think that the people who, who really fight fights for non-human animals are the type of people who fight fights for people. I really, I really do, and I think that the, maybe the most important part of that conference was allowing people who fight fights for people to be in communion with people who who identify with the animal welfare movement. I think seeing that common lift is so you only have to see it once to to believe that you were never fighting for different things; you were fighting. Of a good fight for animals is a fight for humanity. I think we just need to see it that way and and stop seeing it as a. It's not a separate separate fight. It's it's a it's a it's it's, it's an empathy that certain people have, and it's something that I think the best of us recognize as a as a good and beautiful thing, um, and certainly not in any way a, a, a conflict.
1: Well, Amanda, I would be remiss to finish this podcast without first asking you to tell the world about Bacon Defender. Oh my gosh. Which is one of many examples of ways in which you not only go about your work with incredible expertise and vision, I think, for ways to, to bring these issues together and to move things forward for whistleblowers productively, both those who have already blown the whistle and those who will in the future. But you also do it with tremendous style. And Bacon Defender is one, one example of that. Will you tell us what that is?
0: Well, Bacon Defender um, was a was just an idea that we that, that we had. It was uh, based off of, of the Line Speed campaign and um, how the absurdity of anybody being able to identify and like in the case of chicken, and um, a defect in one third of a second. And, um, and, and in pork, you know, it's like 88 pounds per second. It's a ridiculous absurdity. So um, the concept was what if we made a game of it? And um, so we, we have this um, sort of this old school game that we created where little emoji poos uh, come out of uh, Trump's head and then you are a hot dog shooting at the poos. And you can you you get points for shooting the poos. You you, you get extra points if you shoot, shoot a corporate lawyer, um, that's also <laughs> coming out of Trump's head. But then I started thinking, I was like, well, I don't want to. You know, we've got a lot of uh, people that support us that are vegan and vegetarian, so we we created a, a second version of the game. It's it's part of the same gameplay, but you can switch to vegan mode, and at that point, then you are an eggplant. <laughs> shooting <laughs> at the poos coming out of uh, Trump's head—it's um, actually—it's—it's it's fun. It—it's—it's—it's it's, it's manic and crazy, and you're—you know—you shoot. You're, you use your little space bar to shoot at things, and it's a lot of fun. You can find it at foodwhistleblower.org under our uh, high speed uh, campaign or high speed lines uh, campaign. But if hold on one second, hold on, I have something. I have something. Let me just let me just one second. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. I brought you guys something. I just I mean I, this is this is another campaign that we're doing. Oh, so yeah, this is um this is um I'll let you describe what you're getting here. This is part of our snap back clap back, um, our growing resistance campaign. What you're looking at is um sort of a John Deere hat that um that is uh we have all of our, our uh our contract growing farmers wearing the growing resistance uh caps. So it kind of Kind of has a little MAGA hat feel to it, <laughs> but it's also got this really cool farmer John Deere thing. So I thought it'd be fun if the people at, at Yale also and were part of the Snapback Clapback. And uh, Snapback is a style of hat for for the, the hipsters among your your listening audience or those who are not hipsters who needed to know, but um so the snapback clapback is it's a little lovely green hat. So you can find that also on our um Our website. It's just a a fun way to add a visual effect to uh, people who are um, unhappy with the current state of contract growing and want to be part of what we're calling the growing resistance. So.
2: I love it. I will wear this while I am playing Bacon Defender and shoot him in the poos at Trump's head. Oh, you'd also, you
0: know, give it to your favorite hipster. Let's start trending the the growing resistance. So, but it's a lot. Of, it's fun, and and I um I was I was uh, I I actually gave some of these to some uh, producers from sixty minutes. I, I think it's gonna I think it's gonna push the envelope. Sometimes you just need. Just need a John Deere hat to get your point across, or or, or poos coming out of Trump's <laughs> head to get your point across. But you have to do something. It's be a little bit different because, um, you know, there's a lot of competition for people's attention these days. And um, if if a, a fun little game, it, it actually it, we got over four million views. On that, it was not. It was not a super expensive game. You can see it. It's it's done in the classic sort of Nintendo 64, sixty four sixteen bit graphics style. It was not a huge effort, but it was a lot of. Uh, but it, be, it was it became kind of a labor of love and a lot of fun. And um, you'll even see Rosie O'Donnell in the game. You can you can <laughs> you can even play with her. Like there's lots of, there's lots of stuff going on in the game. So. And um and these these hats you should you should see our farmers wearing them they they love them so hopefully uh, Yale will will love them too
1: oh, we certainly will to close Amanda we ask each guest to recommend a couple books or films or other
0: works to listeners that have influenced how they think about animals Do several come to mind for you well one one that uh, Timothy Patrick every twelve seconds I I think it's um that is as close to a whistleblower's story as. It can get done by a person uh, doing an undercover investigation um, reporting on on the life of a worker in, in his case in a beef slaughterhouse. I, I can tell you that everyone who I've ever hired for the Food Integrity Campaign FIC um, has has gotten that book as their first read. So it's I said this is this is what it's like to be a whistleblower. So I think yeah his, his narration is is brilliant, but then his philosophy is spot on. So I, I, I highly recommend that.
1: Well, terrific. Amanda Hitt, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Thank you, too, to Ryan
2: McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is sponsored by the Law, Ethics, and Animals Program at Yale Law School and the Yale Human Nature Lab. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find more about Amanda Hitt and her work. Thanks for listening.